All right. Well, you know what? My name, if you don't know who I am, I'm Pastor Jim, and it's really great to be here and worship with you tonight. And we're going to talk about uh, Joshua chapter 7. And you can go ahead and turn there, and I'm just going to review a little bit, and then we'll pray. I haven't forgotten prayer. Don't worry. Um, But you guys remember that in chapter 6, where we saw Jericho come down and all that stuff, right? It was a It was a chapter full of rejoicing. It was a chapter full of joy, uh, full of faith, full uh, full of seeing God do something amazing and mighty. And sadly, chapter 7 starts very differently. And so we're going to read the first verse and then pray. Chapter 7, verse 1 says... But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. The worship time tonight was beautiful and intimate. It touched our hearts. We do need the power of Jesus to reign here. Not just in this room, but in our hearts, in our lives, in our homes, in our jobs. God, we ask you to move in our lives according to your good pleasure as it is In heaven, whatever your will is, let it be done here. And Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, that you would use it in our lives, use it in our hearts. God, nobody came here just for an academic lesson or a teaching, but we want to know your word and we want it to so be digested by our hearts, by our spirit, that it changes us. So we ask you to do that work in us. We submit to you. We surrender to what you want to do tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I'm going to start reading in verse 2. And verse 2 is the story. The spoiler alert was verse 1, where it said something had happened. Achan did a bad thing. God was upset. And now verse 2 begins to tell us what Achan did and and how that all unfolded. It says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sher Barim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. There's a couple of things here that led to this defeat of the children of Israel, of their army that day. The first thing we know from verse one is there was sin in the camp. There was something going on that not everybody knew about, but God knew. 
And of course, the person who sinned knew. And so there was sin in the camp. That was the first thing. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But also, you see, there was a self-confidence happening here. There was a self-confidence where before Joshua and his men sought the Lord and asked, what should we do? They waited for the thus saith the Lord, I want you to do this. Like in chapter 6, verse 2, it says, the Lord said, do this. But in 7, as we're going to that chapter, that's not the case. They had a victory at Jericho, a mighty victory. And now, all of a sudden, they're moving to the next battle thinking, we got this. We got this thing. Now, I don't know if their confidence came from the fact that, that they really thought that suddenly they were great military leaders and great, a great military? If suddenly they thought, man, this is all about me. You know, yeah, God maybe did something, but really, truly, I'm pretty good. You know, it's like I'm ready to write a book. I'm going to write the book. And sometimes we're like that, where God does something in our life, and before long we forget that it was God that did it at all. And either we become ungrateful, or we walk around acting like we're pretty amazing. And we're ready to write that book. I am an expert on family. I am an expert on marriage. I am an expert on spiritual warfare. I am a, and we start thinking it's about us and what we have to offer. I'm not saying this is necessarily the way where Joshua was, but it's possible. There's another possibility. And that possibility is that Joshua just expected that God would do everything exactly like he had done it before and didn't bother to ask him. We do that too. We reduce God to a formula many times. God did it this way. He's going to do it that way the next time. Don't bother asking him. We don't need to walk in the spirit or anything because he's just going to operate that way. And we expect him to do it. And when he doesn't do it, we're very angry very hurt, very disillusioned, but that's where they were. You know, there was no seeking the Lord. There was no thus saith the Lord. They did what seemed logical. And, and I think that there is a danger for all of us to become self-confident. 36 people died. These were the only Israelites that had been killed in battle since entering the promised land. This was... This was earth-shattering to them. You might think, only 36 people? That's not very many. Well, yes, but 36 people because a man sinned. Their death, deaths, could be laid squarely at his feet. This was substantial. They hadn't experienced death yet as they'd come into the promised land. Remember, these people were the ones who said, we're not going to do it like our parents. We're not going to do it like that generation. Now, the old generation has died off. These young people, the younger people, are following after God. They're going straight with him, for him. But here is a mistake. They didn't seek the Lord. They're sin in the camp. And catastrophe happens. The reason that their heart melted 
which means they were terrified. Their hearts melted like water. It means they had no stamina. They had no fortitude. It was because they were wondering, what does this mean? We came into this land believing that God was going to conquer all of it for us. And now we have had a defeat. What does this mean for the other cities? What does it mean that the bigger cities are going to find out that this little bitty village whipped our tail? What does that mean about us? What are they going to think about us? Does that make us a target? Not just to mention, I'm sure they were in shock. So it says their hearts melted like water. Look at verse 6. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now, this is interesting. Now they're praying. Now he remembered to pray. I just want to point out. Come on. We don't pray, and then we get kicked in the teeth somehow. Anybody ever been kicked by a horse or a mule or anything like that? It hurt. <laughs> it's, it's not fun. And sometimes we feel like life does that. We get kicked, and then what happens? We pray. And he, that was the right thing for him to pray, but he should have prayed before. But he prays, it's a good thing, but look what he does, he, he puts the blame on God. Did you notice that? He puts the blame on God. He says that they put dust on their heads, the reason that people did that was to, uh, to show extreme distress, extreme humility, that they were in mourning. The idea is from dust we came, from dust we will return, I am nothing but dust. It's a, it's a sign of humility and complete dependence upon God. They're in mourning. So they, he begins to ask God why. And he blames God. And, and I, I want you to know it's okay to ask God why. That's not the issue. We can ask God why. That can be part of our prayer life. God wants us to have that communication that, the question is, why, what is the condition of our heart that is causing us to blame God for our difficulty? You know, prayer is such a, an essential part of life of a believer. It's not an obligation. It's not something you have to do for 10 minutes or something, you know, where you're just like, man, I gotta put in my time or somebody's gonna guilt me, my wife's gonna guilt me, my husband's gonna guilt me. I just want to do my quiet time so my kids will see me and maybe they'll have an okay relationship with God. I mean, it's great to do it so your kids see it. That's awesome, but that's not our motivation. 
our time with the Lord is a privilege to speak to God and to be spoken to, to spend time in his presence. You know, God wants us to pray about the big things and the little things, and he wants us to communicate about every issue of our life. And he wants us to not just communicate, but to commune with him. He desires to speak to you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to have that relationship with you. He wants to direct our lives. You know, he is patient and loving and kind. And he wants to spend time with you. I I believe that it's in prayer and in those times of silence before the Lord and times of listening for his voice and being in the word and praying that the best spiritual formation occurs. You know, we, we want to be discipled or spiritually formed. We believe that we are being formed by something right now. You're being formed by something. You're being formed perhaps by your circumstances, by the people that you hang around, perhaps by the TV shows you watch, the movies you watch, the music you listen to. Perhaps that's what's forming you. But as believers, we're supposed to be formed in the image of God. And Jesus wants to be such an active part of our life that, that every area of our life is transformed by him. And it's not some religious thing where you're going to walk around like some kind of uh, religious weirdo, totally detached from the world and everybody around you. That is not spiritual formation. That is not what it talks about. What it means is that there's just a living relationship with God, and he's changing you. You're spending time in his word. You're becoming missional. You're becoming somebody who wants to, to just live their life for Jesus but it's real. So you, you begin to care about others and not be self-focused. I want that. I need that in my life. I am I have not yet apprehended, but I am trying to apprehend. I am on the road to know more about Jesus and to be formed by him. Prayer is such an amazing part of that. It's so interesting to me that in the passage, Joshua says, what about your great name? You know, he's saying to God, this is a smudge on your great name. What have you done, God? How could you let this happen? Now look what you've done. What about your name? But I want to tell you something. When we read scripture, what we see is that God is more concerned about the hearts of people and our spiritual formation than his reputation. And I know we're not supposed to just try to bring shame on the name of God or church, or, of course not. But I'm saying that God will halt something that's happening. He will stop the move of the Holy Spirit in a service. He will allow a leader of a church to be found out even though people in the community will think, I knew that church was this or that. I knew that Christianity was this or that. You know, and people in the church are hurt, and, and people are like, how could God allow that? He can allow it because, I want to tell you, that he is in the business of bringing light. 
bringing light and shining it in darkness and dispelling the darkness. And that means exposing sin. And that means that he cares more about you than he cares about how he looks. That's hard to swallow for me, to be honest with you. I mean, I have argued with God over that. I've argued with God when I've seen churches go down or I've seen ministries that started out really well, but then they went bad and the guy gets found out or the girl gets found out and they get sent to jail on tax fraud or whatever happens. And, and it's just like, God, why couldn't it have been done a different way? You know, where, where everything was just kind of smoothed over. Because he exposes sin and he brings light to the darkness. He cares about you. He wants you to be spiritually formed into the image of his dear son. Verse 10 says, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? I love that. He wasn't saying don't pray. He was saying there's action to be done here. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the households that the Lord takes shall come near uh, man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. He says to Joshua, get up and do what you're supposed to do. Repent. That was the direction. Get up, repent. Tell my people to repent. What does repent mean? It means to recognize you're going the wrong direction, you're doing the wrong thing, and turn away from that thing. It's not being sorry, although sorry is probably part of it. The repentance that he's asking for from Joshua and his people are, include exposing sin and destroying the devoted things. Exposing sin and destroying devoted things. What's a devoted thing? Do you guys remember in chapter 6 when God said, I want everything, all of their goods and everything to be destroyed as, a, uh, as an offering to me? It's all going to be destroyed. Don't keep one thing. Not one. He made it very clear. Joshua told his people that very thing. So the devoted things were things devoted, first of all, to pagan gods. And now they're called devoted things because they were devoted for destruction. All right? So those are the things that we're talking about. 
So the truth has to come out. And the things that represented sin, they, they have to be gotten rid of. Uh, there, there were things that caused the motivation for sin. God saying, I want them gone. You have to make a break from those things. You can't keep them and function as my child, is what God is saying to them. And I just want to try to apply that to us for a second. Think about the things that cause us to sin. You know, do we hold on to those things for some weird reason? Like, we think our behavior is going to change now because we were sorry, so we hold on to those things, and then it happens again. Or that relationship. Or that attitude. What do we hold on to? There are some things that God is saying he wants out of our lives. Because they cause us to sin. They cause us to stumble. And you're asking God to forgive you and saying you're sorry. But you hold on to those things that cause the issue for you. It's almost like you are reserving the opportunity to sin again. It's like you have perhaps something in your deceitful heart because you know our hearts are deceitful. Sometimes we don't always know what we think and feel <clears throat> until it's exposed later. But perhaps sometimes we're reserving something just in case. So God also told Joshua, this is how the person's going to be found out. He would expose it in layers. First, it would be the tribe, then the family, then the household, and then the man. I believe it was because he was giving Achan time to confess. Time to confess on his own. Imagine Achan standing there. He sees this happen. First, the tribe. Then, the clan or his family. Then, his household comes up. At no time did Achan want to say, okay, okay, just stop this nonsense, okay, it's me. Why didn't Achan God was giving him time, I believe, for repentance. It says in verse 16, so Joshua arose early in the morning and he brought Israel near tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was taken and he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken and he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man and Zabdi was taken and he brought near his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. I want to tell you, that, that seems out of place perhaps to us because we think of give praise to him as being like, yay, God, which is, that's praise. But what this means is recognize the authority and the supremacy and the supremacy, sorry, authority, supremacy, the grandeur, the majesty of God. That's what he's saying. Recognize it and tell the truth. Because you recognize who God is, you cannot lie, is what Joshua was challenging him with. My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. 
And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Give glory to God and tell the truth. Glorify him by living a life of transparency. This was the challenge that Joshua was saying to not just Achan, but to all the people who were listening. Because even though Achan hid his stuff, it didn't keep God from seeing it. You think you have hidden sin, perhaps? But I guarantee you, the God of all creation sees it and knows. And we can fool the people around us sometimes, but God knows our sin, and that should be sobering to us. Not creating fear because we think we're going to mess up so bad that God's going to suddenly smite us. But fear in the sense of respect of God. And realizing that you as a New Testament believer can live a life of repentance. You can walk in a life of transparency and confession before the Lord. Not a perfect life. That is not even what God requires of you but a life of transparency and confession. I think of confession in three areas. I think of confession to God, confession to myself, and confession to others. Confessing to myself that I'm a sinner, confessing that I blew it, and confessing to God that I need him and I need his forgiveness. Sometimes I don't even know what those sins are until I ask God. So it's maybe it starts with confessing to God, and then confessing to myself, yes, I've sinned. And confessing to others. Live a life of truth and transparency in order to give God glory. This talks about transgression, the word transgression here. You know, we know that sin means to miss the mark. We know that. Uh, but transgression specifically is direct rebellion against God. A direct rebellion against God. And that's what was happening here. You know, the, the justice of God demands that sin be punished. I just told you a little bit earlier how much God loves you and that he's kind and gentle, and he is. But the word says that he's also just. And sin has to be punished. And we know what it says. It says that, that the wages of sin is death. That's what it says. So this just God must answer this sin. He must answer it. It's going to be answered by death. Now we know in the new covenant through Jesus Christ, which we live under, praise his name forever, it means that the justice of God has been poured out on Christ. In other words, he paid for your sin if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus. He paid for your sin and it is forgiven. That's amazing. And as a believer, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And this is talking about the daily struggles that we have, the war we wage against sin, and the times when we fall and repent. 
God is faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. In fact, this is mind-blowing, but we know the word teaches that our sin was forgiven through what Christ did on the cross. All of our sin, past, present, and future. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, his righteousness is accounted to us. So as a believer, why is it necessary to continue to repent on a daily basis or hourly basis or whatever you need? It's necessary for the purpose of relationship and fellowship with Christ. It's like as a believer, if we're born again believers and we sin, it's like we are building a wall with little bricks and each brick is a sin or something that separates us from the fellowship. It doesn't separate us from God's love, nothing can, but it separates us from experiencing God's love, like feeling it, feeling his presence, knowing he's there. We feel that fellowship is somehow broken. And repentance also keeps things in the right perspective in our lives, that he is God and we are not. That there's a standard for our behavior. And the world clearly says, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. So when we break them, we should repent. And as I said earlier, it's not just being sorry. It's turning away from that sin or that action that's displeasing to God. You know, I wonder when a born-again believer doesn't turn away from sin, from that thing or action that's displeasing to God, have we truly repented at all? Or have we just given God lip service? And if we haven't repented, does 1 Corinthians apply to us, that, that scripture? 1 Corinthians 1, 9. If we haven't truly repented, were we forgiven because... And then is our fellowship not restored? Here's some things I asked myself today. Jim, has your relationship and fellowship with Jesus been restored? Is it evident? Do you feel, Jim, that your prayers hit the ceiling and fall back in your face. Jim, do you feel that you can't hear from God? I'm not sure that he will tell us the next thing to do and we haven't done the last thing he told us. Jim, do you have trouble understanding God's word when you used to understand it? Jim, have you grown cold towards church, towards other believers and the things of God? Jim, is your fellowship with your fellow Christians and your family and everything else, is it constantly strained and negative and bitter. You know, if you answered yes to any of those questions, I would encourage you to ask God to search your heart as it says in Psalm 139. 
Ask God to show you anything in there that he wants to change, that he wants you to repent of. Rebellion against God, even for those who are in the church, is serious and it's dealt with seriously in the New Testament. You know, I I think that the church doesn't like this story because we don't always know what to do with it. As a body of believers, we come together and we are faulty. We're all sick. You know, church is like a hospital, right? It's we're, we're all... We're all faulty, we all make mistakes, we're all waging war against sin, we're, we're doing our best, and we're, we're reading the word, hopefully, we're spending time in prayer, we're worshiping Jesus, and he's transforming our lives, and, and it's amazing, right? But it's not always perfect. We get it. <clears throat> it can be really difficult, in fact. But that's okay, like those things, when we make mistakes and pray and repent and when we get on each other's nerves and go, hey man, but I'm so sorry, bro, and, and I can't believe I did that or I said that, you know, that's okay. That's what being a believer is like. You know, saying to somebody, man, I'm discouraged, pray for me. That's the way the body of Christ is supposed to relate to one another. We encourage each other, we exhort one another, we're patient with each other, we love each other. It's like a big family. And you don't have to pretend in the body of Christ. If you have to pretend there's something wrong, something wrong with the way you're looking at things or something wrong with the people around you, but we're not supposed to have to pretend. So there's that, that is a normal part of growing and being sanctified. But there's something else. There is a warning in, in the scripture about people who openly rebel or they're defiant against God, they call themselves Christians, and they operate in the church. I think of 1 Corinthians 5. I think of the man who was in sexual immorality, he was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and remember, the church in Corinth was reprimanded because they had just embraced the man. They just embraced him like it was no big deal, he was welcome there, And he was not being challenged. He was not being disciplined. And Paul said, you know what? He needs to be put out. That's hard, man. We don't want to hear that because the legalists say, oh, that's right. And we need to look for everybody that's sinning. Everybody that's doing anything wrong. Sick them. Get them. And the people who who are actually, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum are like, no, we just have to love everybody. Just let them in, don't make them feel uncomfortable. I mean, seriously, this is so awkward. (laughs) We have this whole spectrum in there, but remember what the scripture says. It's not about what we think. What the scripture says is that we will all be worked on and we're all gonna fail, but we live a life of transparency and repentance. That's okay. This guy, that's not what was happening here. This guy was openly defiant and rebelling and would not change, and the church was acting like it wasn't going on. So Paul said, this is not good for this man. This man needs to know there's a serious problem here. He may not even be a believer. He needs to turn his life to Christ. He needs to go through some things so that he's confronted with reality. So Paul says you need to deal with it. Why? Because the goal was repentance and, and, and restoring that man. In fact, he was restored later in Scripture. 
That was the goal, not just punishing him, not just kicking him out, but for his own benefit. And for those watching to understand that there is a standard in the word of God and that we are a transparent community. The truth is, all sin must be paid for. Your sin must be paid for. It was either paid for by Christ's sacrificial death because you've received him as your Lord and Savior. You've put your faith and trust in him. Or it will be paid for in judgment. All sin must be paid for. So this is a very important passage of scripture. Yes, it's a little different for us because we're under the new covenant. Thank God for the forgiveness he's provided, the mercy and grace, the access to the throne room. But don't take sin lightly. Don't think that it doesn't matter. It says in verse 21 that Achan said, I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. That progression is really interesting and really common. You know, it reminds me of the scripture that talks about the three categories of sin, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. All of those things could be found in this list of what Achan did. And that's how many times it works for us. We see something, we want it, we think about it, we covet it, right? We take it, and then we hide our sin. But who is it hidden from? Certainly not from God. I want to tell you that unrepentant sin is exposed. Unrepentant sin is exposed. To be sure your sins will find you out. Unrepentant sin. If not in this life, certainly at the end of it. Let's look at verse 22. It says, so Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and they brought them to Joshua and to all the people. See, his sin was exposed. And they laid them down before the Lord and Joshua and all of Israel took with him, took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. I want to pause right there. <clears throat> you know, our sin doesn't just affect us. That's the problem with hidden sin. One of the problems. We think that because we hid it from somebody that our sin didn't affect them because they don't know. But our sin truly affects the people around us. It affects our families, our friends, our coworkers, our church. I think about all of the hidden sins in families and how it affects the marriage, the relationship, the communication, the attitude towards one another, how they communicate to the kids, how the, what the kids see happening and how that's compared to what's in scripture. They see that discrepancy. 
what they've been then think of God and what they think of their parents and how they begin to fashion their picture of God as, and authority as they see their parents. And it's just a hidden sin. It's just something that you thought you, you got taken care of, you know? You're covering up. But it has ramifications. Verse 25 says, And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the Lord, uh, sorry, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. I'm grateful that in Christ Jesus we have forgiveness of sin. You know, that we are reconciled to God through him. I'm grateful that we can live a life of communing with Christ. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, it says that they were naked and unashamed. Everything was transparent. Everything was vulnerable. And it was beautiful. But sin happened. The fall happened. They sinned and then they hid from God. And sin had to be atoned for. So a sacrifice had to be made for the forgiveness of sin. Blood had to be shed. So that's why they sacrificed animals. But that was an imperfect sacrifice. So Jesus entered the scene in the incarnation. He entered the scene to be the answer to the sin problem. For all who would believe and surrender their hearts and live for him. And God has been pursuing mankind ever since. He desires to have a relationship with you. The plan was never that it would just be fire insurance to keep you out of hell or to help you be a member of a cool church with cool perks. The, dire, the desire is that your life would be so transformed by his presence, but this requires giving your heart to him. This requires communing with him. It requires allowing him to explore and expose areas of your life where you need to repent and turn away from sin and walk with him. I'm not just talking to you tonight. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to our pastoral team, our leadership team, our volunteers, everybody in this body. We're in the same boat. If we're not careful, we begin to live a hidden life rather than that transparent, beautiful life of communing with Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that way. I want to have an altar call tonight in two different sections. The first, I want to say, if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is the perfect time to do that. To respond to the Spirit of God speaking to you right now and say to him, God, I do want you. I recognize that I need you and I want to give my life to you. Would you pray with me? Would you bow your heads? God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask you, God, to work, to move, to touch, 
to draw. And I pray for everyone in this room that if there's anyone here who hasn't yet put their faith and trust in you, that they would open their hearts now. They would confess their need for you. Tonight, if you want to pray, if you want to receive Christ, if you want to put your faith and trust in him, would you lift up your hand so I can pray with you? Is there anybody out there that says, yeah, Pastor Jim, that's me. I see your hand. Is there anyone else? I see your hand. I see your hand. Is there anyone else who says, yeah, pray with me, Pastor. Can I have everybody stand? I'm going to say a prayer right now. And I'm going to ask you to, to follow along with me. If you raised your hand, you want to receive Christ, commit your life to him, please just pray along with me. Father, I come to you tonight. I recognize I need you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross to be the answer for my sin. But not just for forgiveness, but to be the answer for my life. Have my life. I surrender to you. Transform my life tonight. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the follow-up team to come up. and If you raised your hand, to receive Jesus. I'm going to ask you to do something bold, and that is to walk up here and one of these uh, counselors want to pray with you, and we're not going to take you off to the follow-up room or anything like that tonight. We're going to keep you right in here, but just come forward. Let them pray with you. They have a Bible they want to give you, and, and you can ask questions. You can uh, talk to them about anything you want. This is a great time to do that. And I'm going to challenge you to step forward. This is a, the first step of your new life with Jesus. Don't shy away from it. You're among friends and family here tonight. I don't want to... I want to talk to the believers... If you were convicted of sin tonight in your life, if you feel like 
yeah, man, I, I think I do have some hidden sin in my life, or I know I do. Or maybe you felt like, well, some of those things that Pastor Jim read off were, sounded like me. I'm not hearing this, the voice of the Lord, and I'm not understanding Scripture anymore, and I'm not in unity with my, my brothers and sisters in Christ. If those things sounded like your life, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to spend time praying right now. And I'm reading a great book. The pastoral team is reading it right now. And one of the things it talks about there in, in confession is as there's two parts. One is searching and the other is naming. The first one God does and the second one we do. So when we ask the Spirit of God to search our heart and He begins to shine His light in our life, we allow it and we open ourselves to it and then we name the sin that He points out. We name it and repent, confess it to Him with a desire to be changed, with a desire to walk away from that sin and embrace all that Christ has. Maybe you just want to ask him to give you a more transparent life, to walk in that, commune, that, that community with him and with others. But what I want to invite you to do right now is to come forward with prayer, for prayer. Yes, you can pray right where you are and God will hear you. What are you hiding from? What are you hiding from? Come up and ask for prayer. Nobody knows if it's a big sin or a little thing or just a request for healing. Sometimes our mind thinks, oh, what are people going to think? What is this? What is that? That is definitely not a life of transparency. That is definitely not trusting your community. So I want to challenge you. If you prayed to receive Jesus tonight, come forward. If you want to pray that God would search you and change you, pray that and come forward with prayer, for prayer. All right? Can we do that now?